0: chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, if you'd follow along with me as we read from the Word of God. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much and in every way, chiefly, because to them were committed the oracles of God. What if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Shall we pray together? Father, we do thank you for the freedom that we have. Lord, that video was inspiring and humbling to see all of those graves of men and women who serve so faithfully. Lord, so that we could do what we're doing right here today. Lord, we do not take it for granted. And we pray now, Lord, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And we commit this time to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3, this section of scripture has been referred to by some. As the most difficult verses in the entire epistle. And in order to comprehend their complexity, we need to understand that within these first eight verses, the Apostle Paul is actually carrying on an imaginary dialogue with the religious Jewish opponents. Of his message. Paul uses an ancient style of teaching referred to as a diatribe, which is characterized by rhetorical questions being asked by an imaginary questionnaire. Paul raises specific objections that no doubt he had heard before, and then he answers the objections. That he presents. Paul had learned from his experiences and confrontations that unbelieving Jews would consistently accuse him of several things. For one, that he taught against God's chosen people, the Jews. Second, that he taught against God's promises to his people, the Jews. And third, that he taught against God's purity or integrity. So it's with that in mind that we look at these verses. And the first question that Paul presents is this. What advantage is it to being a Jew? Based upon what Paul had written in the previous chapter, the Jews that would have read this portion of the letter Would have been greatly offended. For if, as Paul suggested, a Jewish person was not saved by being part of a chosen race of people that they were born into, and if they weren't made righteous by the religious rituals that they practiced, and if the rite of circumcision was nothing more than an outward medical procedure, with no spiritual significance, then what is the benefit of being a Jew? I believe it is a fair question, especially when you consider the tragic history of the nation of Israel and what they have endured. The hardship, the slavery, the captivity, the dispersion, the hatred, the Holocaust, and an attitude, even to this day, of anti-Semitism simply because They are Jewish. The apostle had heard this argument before. He anticipated it, and so he responds to it in verse 2. This is his response. Much and in every way, chiefly because to them, that is the Jews, were committed the oracles, meaning the word of God. The primary advantage that the Jews had over every other nation is that they were given the revelation of the living God within his word. A revelation that revealed the nature of God, who he is. It also revealed the will of God, the purpose of man. God disclosed himself to the nation of Israel. He enlightened them on the origin of man, The meaning of morality, the purpose of man, even the destiny of man. No other nation had ever been given such a divine opportunity as Israel. Yet over time, they focused primarily on the privilege and not the responsibility that came with it. Now, this right here is something that we must even guard ourselves against today. Being a part of a Christian church is a tremendous privilege in a free country like ours. There is an advantage to being in a place where the word of God is preached. But if, like those in Paul's day, we take for granted what we have, and it makes no impact on the way that we live, then we also are in danger of being self-deceived. Another objection that Paul had been confronted with is that he taught against the promises found in God's Word. It says in verse 3, what if some don't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Imagine the objector raising this question. All right, Paul, you said the Jews have the privilege of receiving the Scriptures. What if some of the Jews disobeyed the commandments and were unfaithful to God and came under his condemnation? Will God now be unjust to forget the everlasting covenant that he made with the Jewish people? Is he done with them? Here Paul responds to this objection. Saying, in essence, that their unbelief could not prevent, even their unbelief could not prevent the salvation which God would ultimately provide. But even a deeper truth was that, contrary to what the thinking of most of the Jews was, that salvation never was offered by God on the basis of heritage, ceremony, good works, or any other basis other than faith. This objection that they raised would also imply that God somehow fails to keep his promises. And so Paul responds to that. And this is what he says in verse 4. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and let every man be a liar. As it is written, you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. When Paul responds with certainly not, it is the strongest negative Greek expression that there is. And it carries the connotation of impossibility. It's a way of declaring, no way, it'll never happen. God always keeps his word. Every man is a liar in comparison to God, who is always true. Paul says that unfaithfulness with God is not possible. God will always keep his word regardless of how man may fail. Even if all of the Jews didn't believe and for some reason were cast aside, God would still fulfill his word. His purposes and plans will still be accomplished. Listen carefully. If any doctrine, if any teaching is ever applied to God that presents him as unfaithful to his word, that teaching is false teaching. It's just not true. Let God be true, Paul said, and let every man be found a liar. If every human being who ever lived declared God was unfaithful, God would still be found true, and every accuser would be found to be a liar who would testify against God. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. I like what he said. Quote, it is a strange, strong expression, but it's none too strong. If God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word, like himself, is immutable. We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word and he thinks more of that than of the universal opinion of man. Wouldn't it be wonderful this morning if every Christian could grasp this truth, if we could understand that God keeps his word. How much doubt, how much insecurity, how much anxiety would quickly subside in the midst of all that is changing around us, in all that is going on, if we could understand and grasp that the fidelity of God is still intact. God will keep his word. His promises will come to pass. You can be certain of that. Paul actually quotes here, by the way, from Psalm 51. In verse 4, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David wrote after he had committed both the sins of murder and adultery. And in this psalm, David confesses his sin before God. For David came to realize that God was justified in his words and blameless when he judged. You see, David came to this realization... That even though he had failed, God would never fail. David had failed. He had broken his promise as the king of Israel. But God did not. The next objection that was raised by an imaginary objector is in verse 5. Paul was accused of teaching against God's purity. Look at verse 5. He says, But if our unrighteousness, demonstrates the righteousness of God, well, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Now the person objecting to Paul's statements was saying this. All right, Paul, what you've shown me is that my disobedience has given God the opportunity to demonstrate his righteousness. So therefore, if what I'm doing is sin. And disobedience, and it makes God look good because He's getting a chance to show His love and His forgiveness. How can He condemn me for sinning when it's making Him look good because He has a chance to forgive me? If my unfaithfulness has somehow given God the opportunity to show His faithfulness, then my sin must be a good thing, right? No. I've done evil. But good has come out of it, therefore God would be unjust to judge me for my sin, because it's brought him glory. So the logical conclusion is the more that I sin, the better God looks. Paul again responds with the emphatic, certainly not. How then could God judge the world? Again, the apostle responds, with an emphatic no. You know, this kind of rationale, just for just so you understand, this is the equivalent of saying, hey, it's great to break someone's heart because it gives them a chance to show how much they love you. It's it's the way of saying, you know what, it's good to go around and put people in the hospital by hospital by punching them in the face so that you can send them flowers because you want them to recover. I mean, that's just ridiculous kind of rational thinking. It's irrational, really, and that's what Paul is saying here. The point is, everyone who lived on this basis, no one would be held accountable or eventually be judged. Furthermore, God would be removed from being judge of the entire world if he actually arranged things so that sin would glorify him. God would have no basis to be a judge if he approved of sin and condoned it. It's simply a ridiculous argument. This irrational and absurd argument that Paul raised was one of the things that he was actually accused of teaching. There were those that were saying, let me tell you about the doctrine Paul's preaching. This is it right here. He's saying it's all right to sin so God can be glorified. That's what they were saying about Paul. Imagine coming into a city where people had made up these kinds of lies about you. And that is why he says here, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, um, why am I being judged as a sinner? And why not say, let's do evil, that good may come, as we are slanderously reported as some affirm that we say. People are saying that we say that. And what is his response to this? He just says, their condemnation is just. It's, a, he doesn't even, it's not even worth answering the question. He doesn't even try. That's just so foolish. He says, their, their condemnation is just. Those who have this mentality that they can justify a lifestyle of sin so that God can show how gracious he is through forgiveness, have an unbiblical view of God's grace, wherein they presume upon the grace of God and they deny the work of Christ. And this is important to understand because there are people sometimes who think, well, I'm just going to go out and sin so I can have an awesome testimony and come back and share with people. I just think that is so ridiculous. I'm going to go out and do all these things so that then I'll be able to have a platform to share about how gracious God is. I'm, g- I'm going to have a great testimony about all of the stuff that I was involved with. Listen, you want a great testimony? Live for Christ and not get involved in all that stuff. That's a great testimony. Any fool can go out and live in the flesh and live after the flesh. That's not difficult. What's difficult is to live a godly life in the midst of a perverse world. Now that's the testimony I'd like to have. Do you understand? Some of this, well, I didn't ride a Harley, you know, I wasn't in a motorcycle gang. I didn't even ride a moped, you know, so what? It doesn't matter. I know a lot of people that would not like to have the testimony they have. They'd much rather have the testimony of I got saved and I've walked with Jesus and I didn't get involved in all that stuff. And you got to be mindful of that, too. Sometimes be careful that the testimony doesn't become a bragamony where we talk more about all the sin we were involved with in detail rather than what Jesus saved me from. You don't have to be so specific, bro. Sister, please, you don't have to get, we're good, just, mm mm-hmm, you were a sinner and we get it, you know. We don't need to know all the details of how dark your darkness was. But now Paul takes things one step further with a crushing blow of conviction, listen, that no disagreement could counter. In the closing argument, it's like Paul's in a court, courtroom here. He gives the most explicit description of the total depravity of man anywhere in scripture. And he does so by using a series of Old Testament scriptures, one right after another. He quotes Psalm 14, he quotes Psalm 5, he quotes Psalm 140, quotes Psalm 10, quotes Isaiah 59, quotes Psalm 36, and what this was a common practice amongst rabbis when they would teach. It's called the Karaz, and it literally means the stringing of pearls, placing scriptural texts one next to, to another with 13 13 indictments in three different categories that renders us with the knowledge that every person, no matter who you are, listen carefully, is a sinner. Is a sinner. Why is that important? Because many in the world today are under the delusion that man is essentially good. Some would even say he's innately good. We only need to improve ourselves. We just need to reform ourselves, and we'll be fine. But the Bible says the opposite. Whether you're a Hebrew or a heathen, you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. And so verse 9 begins with the charge. Here's the charge in the court case. You ready? Here it is, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged, both Jew and Greek's, They are all under sin. Following the evidence that Paul presented that all humanity is sinful, there were some, whether they were Jews or they were Roman believers, they say, does this mean that we're better than them because we know the Lord and we're walking with the Lord? Did God show us mercy because we were created uniquely different from those people that you described? The answer is no. Our human nature is on the same level As every other person. That is why Paul says the word all are under sin. You might want to underline all. All means all. That's exactly what it means. If sin were represented by the color blue, every single person would be a shade of blue. We're all sinners. I hope that makes sense. When it says here we're all under sin, this is what it means. Under the control of sin in bondage to sin, helpless to escape from it on our own. The charge is we're all under sin. But here comes the indictments, one right after another. Here's the first one. We're all universally unrighteous. It says here, verse 10, there is, might want to underline the word none. None righteous, no, not one. The word righteousness, 30 times in the book of Romans you'll read it. We tend to think of righteousness in terms of human standards. But in the scriptures, when the Bible speaks about righteousness, it means to have a right standing with God. It means to live according to his standards that he says he will accept. And Jesus told us what that standard was. It was perfection. Anybody perfect here this morning just... Raise your hand, and the ushers will lead you out. Nobody's perfect here. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. The application is this. There has never, ever been a person, except for Jesus Christ, who has ever lived up, To the standards of righteousness that God demands. Not even one person. There are no levels of righteousness in salvation. There are no exceptions. Universally, all of us unrighteous. Next indictment. As if that wasn't enough. We are all spiritually ignorant. Verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Understands what? Understands the depths of the attributes of God, the comprehension of God's perfect will. Paul is saying that there is no one who continuously grasps or puts together the truth about God and his absolute demand for righteousness. Man is unable to comprehend the truth of God or grasp God's standard. Spiritual truth can only be discerned spiritually. Paul told us, you remember in 1 Corinthians, the natural man, the carnal man, the sinful man, doesn't discern the things of the Spirit. They have to be spiritually discerned. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that man is darkened in his condition, blinded by the God of this world. When you live in sin, you're blinded to truth. You don't see it. It says they don't seek after God. You remember the Bible says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. Mankind doesn't search for the living and true God or his truth. Rather, you remember Paul said previously, we suppress the truth. We deny the truth. We've exchanged the truth for a lie. Man in a depraved condition exchanges truth for a lie. In fact, many will actually make attempts to escape the true God by making a God In their own likeness, man thinks that the gospel has is a threat to his darkened condition, and so he wants to escape the gospel, not knowing that it's the gospel that actually sets us free. And this universal unrighteousness, this spiritual ignorance, leads to a life of wandering. That is what it says in verse eleven: they have all gone out of the way. Proverbs 14 tells us in verse 12 that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is destruction. There is a broad road. Jesus said many people are on it, and it leads to destruction. And there is a narrow road, few that find it, that leads to eternal life. This wandering. And you think about all the things that that we were wandering into. I don't know your testimony. I don't know what what your background is necessarily, but think of the things that you were wandering into, trying to find fulfillment. It could have been your job, the pursuit in your career, trying to find fulfillment. You're wandering, trying to find it in relationships with this person, that person, just looking for something to to fill the void, some achievement, some goal, anything, just wandering, aimless. And that leads... That wandering life with spiritual ignorance and universal unrighteousness, well, it leads to becoming unprofitable, he says. They have become unprofitable. Another word is useless. Unprofitable is a word that was also used, interesting, to describe milk that had turned sour and rancid. That ever happened to you? Unuseful, frightening. Smells horrible. There's no purpose for it except to be thrown out. Apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's what our life is. It's unusable. Now listen, you can do things in this life apart from Christ, but this is what the Bible says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What's it going to profit you? You could do all of these things, you can amass all of these achievements, but in the final analysis from eternity, what does heaven say about your life ultimately? Useless, unprofitable from heaven's perspective. Ouch! That really hurts, but it's really true. It's a life apart from Christ. Jesus is the life, and that's when you begin to experience life. And then he says, by the way, there's none that does good. Again, this is God's standard of goodness, not ours. According to my standard of goodness, I'm pretty good. I'm definitely better than they are. I mean, let's just be honest here. You know, according to my standard of goodness, we're not talking about my standard. We're not talking about yours. We're talking about God's. According to God's standard, according to heaven's standard, useless, not doing good compared to what God says is good. It's a completely different definition. God's definition, not the world's. Doing good, that is upright. That is according to God's perfect standard. Holy, perfect. Nope, haven't achieved that. I definitely have fallen short of that. Paul moves from the character of man now to the conduct. So now you're you're living this Aimless life, it's useless. I mean, you're doing your thing, and you you think you're pretty good based upon your standard of goodness, your definition of goodness, but still, the Bible says there's none righteous, so you're not getting any closer to heaven apart from Christ. You're just wandering around a useless life from heaven's perspective, and that leads to, what about your speech, your conduct? Look at what it says. Their throat, their lips, their tongues, their mouth. Look at what he says. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongue, they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, and their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. First of all, it says their throat. It's like an open tomb. When a body is placed into the ground, into a hole in the ground, you bury it, so that no one will see the decaying corpse, and that no one will fall into the hole within the ground. Yet the man who is under sin and the dominion of it in bondage to it is like A grave that's uncovered and opened, and all that you heard from his mouth is a revelation just of the decaying state within. It's like an open tomb. Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks, and what's coming out is death and sin and decay. The carnal man, the fleshly man, the sinful man, and then also practicing deceit using people and and deceiving people to get what you want and how you want it and when you want it and just lie to this person and say a little bit of half-truth there and do this, and that's just a deceitful way of living. And then it says poison is on their lips like asps. An asp is an Egyptian cobra. Their fangs are folded under their jaw, yet when they strike, that's when the teeth come out, And the sack of poison that's hidden is injected into the victim and can kill them. It's describing the person living under sin. The things they say and how they say it and the intention with which they say it. It's poisonous. Cursing. How about that? Profane. Bitterness coming out of their mouth. You know, one of the things typically that will change when you're born again, one of the things that is noticeable is your speech. Because what happens is, there's a change of heart. And when your heart begins to change, then what you say begins to change. And you, maybe you were one of those people that were just foul. Everything was expletive this and blankety that. And you know you just, you just had a foul mouth all the time. And, and yet, when you got born again, the things that you used to say, you don't say anymore. What, what, how, how, do you, how do you account for that? The Spirit of God is changing your mouth. Changing your, your mind, changing your heart. And if, the, if you're still profane and you're still foul and you're still throwing those things down and letting it fly, you need to repent and ask God to change your heart. If you think it's okay to be a Christian and cuss people out, you're wrong. It's not okay. It's just not okay. True story. Not about me, someone else. But when I remember <laughs> my car broke down one day, this was back in Florida. And I had one of the guys, this is when the church was like four people. And uh, so I called one of the four asked him to come out and help me with my car. Had this Volvo station wagon, 19 something, something. I mean, it was just, it's beautiful. But anyway, I I was there and it broke down. You know, it could have been the starter, could have been this, could have been that. And so I don't know what he was doing, but the thing was up and he said, okay, I'm going to do this and that. And I was like, all right, whatever, you know. And I thought he wanted me to turn the thing, turn the key. I thought that's what he said. So I don't know what he was doing, but I did something, and apparently it sent shock through his body. And with that shock came a bunch of things <laughs> out of his mouth, and I mean, whoa. I mean, just beep it, ba, boo, da. You know what I mean? And the funny thing, I was like, oh my goodness. And then he's, and then he felt really bad because he just just went off in front of the pastor about how, just blanketing, you know. Anyway, I almost killed the guy. We almost went down to three people that day. But <laughs> the point I'm making is that over time, your speech begins to change, begins to be altered. Paul then says, hey, there's three more things here to point out. If, that, if this wasn't, these indictments aren't enough, let me just add to it. This wandering, this bitterness, this cursing, this vileness, where does it lead When you're under the dominion of sin, well, it says in verse 15, it leads to violence. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. They're swift to violence. You know this. We live in an increasingly violent society. People are daily murdered, robbed, beaten, brutalized kidnapped. The moment you think you have seen or heard, the worst thing you could hear, you just wait until the next day, and then something even more horrific is reported. Just this increase of violence. You know the Bible tells us that when God judged the world with a flood, there was violence upon the earth, and Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be we are living in violent days and they are increasing and destruction is following the way of peace they have not known even nations right now threatening one another against world peace i mean this is it's just you know this it's it's everywhere you can't escape it we live in a violent society we see the depravity of man and when you see the depravity of man you wonder to yourself Why? If man is innately good, then why? If America is such high percentage of Christianity, then why? Why is this? I'll tell you why. Paul tells us, really. He says here in verse 18, here's the problem. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So rather than fear God, if you deny God's existence, you don't fear God. You just say he doesn't exist. If you deny the word of God, then you don't fear that one day you will stand before him and be judged. So you dismiss his existence. You deny his word. You have no fear of God. And what follows is a useless, spiritually ignorant, violent, bitter life of emptiness that ends in destruction. And separation from God. This is the indictment. What then is the verdict? Are you ready for this? Here's the verdict. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds Of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Here's the verdict. Simplified, we're all guilty. The whole world is guilty before God and cannot be justified by keeping the law. It's impossible to keep it perfectly all the time. A person looks at the law, considers the requirements that are found within it. It should bring us to the realization that we are guilty. It causes our mouths to be silenced when we try to plead our own righteousness. I look at the law. Anybody here today, again, I would say don't raise your hand, but anybody here today kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, From the time that you came into this world, right up to now, perfectly, all the time. Of course not. We've all broken God's law. We're born sinners. And so therefore, we're all silenced. No one can plead their own righteousness. To talk of our own righteousness in light of the law is foolishness. It's just, we're just blinded, ignorant of what the law requires, The talk of our own righteousness is absurd. So we're suddenly silenced. No flesh, mark that, no flesh, no person can be justified. Guys, listen, why did God give us the law? God gave us the law to show us his righteous right standard, to show us that we're incapable of keeping it. The law shows me I'm guilty. And that, in turn, drives me to the Savior. I have no hope. If it's up to me, I am lost. I am without hope. The law, Paul would write in another place, serves as a schoolmaster. It's a tutor. It, it points out our need for salvation, our need for grace. When you read these things which have been stated, you come to realize that, again, we are all in the same boat, totally depraved, without the ability to save ourselves, even on our best day on your best day, your most noble achievements still would fall horribly short. It'd be like saying right now, we're all going to go down to the shore. And what we're going to do is we're going to attempt to run as fast as we can and jump to Catalina. All right. So after church, let's all meet down there and let's see what happens. All right. We'll see. And I'll tell you something. Some of you may be a little spry. You might get farther than me or others, but there ain't nobody who could jump from the shore to Catalina. You can't make it. Why? It's impossible. Such is the case with salvation. You can't even get close. You can't make it. There's no way we're without hope. And so what do I do? I cry out to God. I humble myself, and I realize that without the provision of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I am doomed. But that, friends, is what makes the gospel such good news because God has made provision for us. There is hope in Christ today. This is what makes God's grace so precious to me. Knowing that I'm without hope, knowing that I can do nothing, I need God. And understanding my state, my condition, I cannot be justified by the works of the law. I can see there is no salvation for me in keeping God's law because as a sinful man, I'm incapable of keeping it. And what does it do? It brings me to the end of myself. And I want to tell you, if you haven't been awake up to this point, you should probably wake up right now because... We've come to a place in Scripture that some have called, you ready for this, the most important verses in the entire Bible. Oh, what? Yes, the most important verses in the entire Bible. You definitely want to see this. This is really important. The most important verses in the entire, did I say that? Okay, right here. This is where the book of Romans turns the corner. God gives a plan for the dilemma we find ourselves in. The answer to the problem we have, the formula for the complicated equation of sin, it's right here. It's not found in works. It's not found in attendance of church or keeping the law. It's found in justification by faith in Christ. Here it is. Oh, this is so good. Verse 21. But now. See, that's a contrast. But now. Now, this is the indictment. This is the verdict. You're all guilty. We're all guilty. But now, the righteousness of God apart, separate from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now, here's the contrast. The law declares we are guilty. The verdict is in. We're all backed into this escapable corner Of God's wrath. No hope of deliverance on our own. All of our attempts have failed. This is the black backdrop on the canvas of our sin. But here comes the brilliant colors. Here comes strokes of beauty in grace. It's like saying, wait, there's more. This isn't the end of the story. It's only the beginning. I have more to tell you. This is the light at the end of the tunnel. That's basically what Paul's saying here. God's righteousness, separate from, apart from, the keeping of the law. Paul is saying that the righteousness of God to be in a right standing with God is available separate from our working to keep the law. Where do I get that? Where does that come from? If it's not based on human achievement or anything that I can do in my strength, if it's apart from the law, where do I get this? God's righteousness is not offered to us as something to take up the slack in between our ability to keep the law and God's perfect standard, it's not given as a supplement. To our righteousness. It's given completely, I'm just, I've got to emphasize this, completely apart from our attempted righteousness. It's separate from it. And to prove this point, Paul looks back to, as a place of reference, the entire Old Testament. He says, when he says the law and the prophets, that refers to the Old Testament. In other words, he's saying, I didn't come up with this on my own. You know, I was out in the desert with Jesus for three years, and he was in Arabia, had this great idea, and you know what? No one's ever heard this before, but I kind of came up with it while I was out there. So here it is. Righteousness apart from the law. I just You're going to love this. It's not biblical, but you're going to love it. No, no, no. He's saying, I've got proof for this. I'm not making this up. This is found throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Justification by faith is found there. And when you read through the Old Testament, you can see it everywhere. It's in places like Habakkuk. Like, is that in the Bible? Yes, a really good book. You should read it. Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. The just shall live by faith, it says in Habakkuk. Isaiah 53, speaking clearly of a Messiah that was coming. All of the Old Testament is pointing to someone who will come and redeem us from our sin. The sacrificial system in Leviticus, you know, you get to Leviticus and you want to leap over it. You don't want to read it because, ah, why is all of this here? It's all there as a foreshadowing pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, which was Christ. In the volume of the book, it's written concerning Jesus, and so when you get to these places where you think like, why so many sacrifices? Why all of this blood for atonement? It's pointing to someone who would come and not just cover our sin, but remove it. It's pointing to Christ. Listen, the Old Testament, Isaac going up the hill with Abraham, realizing that they had everything, the knife, the fire, the wood, no sacrifice. He says to his dad, this question that I believe you could, this is what the entire Old Testament was asking. Where's the lamb? That's the question. Where's the lamb? That's the Old Testament. Where is it? New Testament. Jesus shows up there on the shores of the Jordan, and John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God. Old Testament, where is he? New Testament, there he is. Revelation, worthy is the lamb who was slain, who redeemed us out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of every nation, every people. Where is he? There he is. He's worthy. I mean, that's that's the Old Testament right there. It's all pointing to Christ. Do you understand? It's all pointing to Jesus from start to finish. It's about him. It's his story. So here Paul says, this is seen throughout the law and the prophets, all of the sacrifices, all of the prophecies. It all points to Christ, that there would be righteousness made available through one who would come and be the sacrifice for our sins. By his stripes, we are healed. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. It's about Jesus. The Jews knew from their history that they did not measure up to God's standards. All the things that they had gone through had taught them that man couldn't be justified by keeping a moral standard. That's why they had the sacrificial system. David, Abraham, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all of them knew that there was someone coming. And listen, this morning, if... If you are trying to relate to God on the basis of your goodness, your ability to keep a moral standard that you've devised, or your amazing devotional life, or your do's and don'ts, you will not be justified. That will not make you righteous. If your attitude within your heart is, I'm in a right standing with God this morning because of what I've done or what I am doing, then that is righteousness that is not not the righteousness God accepts. The righteousness that God gives, the justification he offers is apart from our works. If you are trying today, I want to encourage you to stop trying to prove to God that he ought to redeem you because you've got it together, you're missing the point of grace. You're not understanding it. The law can't justify you. It can't make you righteous. It only condemns you. There is nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with me. The law is great. It's perfect, converting the soul. It's good. I'm the problem. To have a right standing with God, apart from the law, the question is, how am I able to be made in a right standing with God if I'm not able to keep the law? Here, here, This is the answer. Verse 22, again, please see this. Even the righteousness of God, here it is, here it is, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. How can I be brought into a right standing with God. What do I need to do? The people asked Jesus, what works can we do that we might inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. That, that's it? Like, b- believe that he did it for me, that he died in my place? Yes. Salvation is completely outside of our ability. We needed someone perfect and holy and righteous to take our place, to die the death we should have died, to redeem us. And Jesus is the one. He is the one who came and died and took our place, took all of the wrath that we deserved upon himself so that we could be saved. Guys, We are justified. Listen, this is a wonderful word, by the way. The word justified, just remember it like this. Just as if you never sinned. It's like it never happened. And the only way that that can take place is not by me keeping the law, which I'm incapable of keeping. It's me turning to Christ and trusting that what he did for me worked That's why I think grace is so amazing. I think that's why in Philippians, Paul said when he had all of these things that he lost, he counted them as rubbish that he might be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness, but the righteousness which is by faith, he said in Philippians chapter three. There was nothing more precious than, than that. Imagine today, just by way of illustration, and here we'll conclude. Let's say, again, illustratively, I'm standing in the courtroom of heaven. The Bible tells us that there is an accuser, a prosecutor of the brethren. He accuses us day and night. You know who it is? Satan. Constantly accusing us. And everything he says is true. Imagine me standing there in the courtroom of heaven and Satan comes up. Starts And it's going to take a while because i got a lot of sin. So, I mean, it's just going on and on and on. I'm just thinking, man, it's been like 10 hours already. And we're just on, you know, the first paragraph. And, you know, it just goes on and on. And everything he says is true. And I feel condemned. And it's all, it's all right. Everything he says is right. He's right. It's true. I am wicked. I am vile. I am without hope. I deserve to be judged. And after he finally finishes, it's as if the father... He's gonna bring down the gavel and pronounce the verdict, which is obvious to everyone, guilty. But then Jesus, imagine Jesus stepping forward. Father, I'd like to approach the bench. I'd like to present some evidence. Well, what evidence are you gonna present? These right here. These are my scars, these are my wounds. My blood was shed for John. He has trusted me for salvation. He's mine. And where the father should say, guilty, he says, justified, free, like it never happened. Because of what I did? No. Because of what Jesus did for me. Justified by faith. In Christ, He did what I could never do for myself. I love what one man said two things I will never forget. One, that I am a great sinner. And two, that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Don't forget that, friend. It's not what you've done, it's what He's done. And if you haven't trusted in Christ for salvation, if you're trying to approach God on the basis of do your best and see what happens, you do not understand God's grace and you are spiritually deceived, blind by your own religious practice. You need to be born again. And so I challenge you today to respond to that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, We thank you this morning for, Lord, for these passages. Lord, although we are guilty under sin, Jesus has made the way where we could be declared justified, righteous in the sight of God. And it's all because of grace. And Lord, I pray today if there are any here in our midst listening and your spirit is is moving upon their heart, Lord, bringing conviction, unmasking the false sense of security or religious foundation they've built on that will not stand in the day of judgment. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to the Redeemer today. Lord, please, save. And if you're here this morning, as eyes are closed and heads are bowed, if you you are not a Christian, if you are not born again, if you are religious but not redeemed, today could be the best day of your life. You can respond to this grace that is so amazing. And if that's you, would you just raise your hand up high? I want to pray for you today. You'd say, that's me, Pastor John. uh, I've known about the Lord. I I went to church when I was a little kid, but I, I can't say that I've... I thought it was me doing my best. I thought it was me doing this and that. I didn't realize that there was this kind of grace. And if that's you and you don't know that you're saved, friend, if you're basing your salvation upon something you've done instead of what he's done, then then you need to be born again today. You need to be truly saved. So just raise your hand up high. I just want to pray for you this morning, giving you this opportunity to get right with God. Anybody at all this morning in this room, God loves you. He died to prove it. And there's nothing that you could do to make him love you more than he does right now. But but he's extending his invitation. Anybody at all in this moment, right now, just raise it up high so I can see you and pray for you today. Father, thank you for your great salvation for undeserving sinners, Lord. You love us so much. What a thrill, what a joy to be saved, Lord, to know. Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us this morning? I would encourage you if you need prayer this morning for anything come on up after the service. There'll be pastors, leaders up front. Would love to pray with you for any needs that you might have today. If not, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And I would encourage you, don't let a day go by that you don't thank God for salvation. I mean, if you think, I just can't think of anything to thank God for today, like as if that were possible. How about salvation? You'll never. I mean, you can thank him. We're going to thank him for eternity for that. So praise him, man. If you're born again, wow, you're not lost anymore. You found the way. You're not. You're not living a lie. You know the truth. I encourage you. Praise God for that. God bless you.